This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to The Sacramentalist, a podcast where the ancient Christian faith is brought to bear on issues prevalent in modern culture. We're your hosts. I'm Father Clayton McElveen. And I'm Father Wesley Walker. And today we are joined by Lance Davis to discuss the Anglican Office Book, which is an incredible resource which he has compiled and published. Welcome, Lance. Thank you, Fathers, for having me. Yeah, we're really, really excited for today's conversation. A little bit of background on Lance. He is a minister of sacred music and organist at St. Luke's Anglican Catholic Church in Augusta, Georgia, not too far from me. Um, He's a graduate of Oral Roberts University, where he studied patristics and linguistics. And he has a certification with the American Guild of Organists, having completed organ residencies at York Minster and Southwark Cathedral in London. He also serves as the Latin educator at St. Andrew's Anglican Academy in Chester, California. And he has recently completed his master's work in theology and is an ordinand in the Anglican Catholic Diocese of the South. So congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah, so we are are very excited. Um, I know Father Wes and I have had many conversations about the Anglican office book uh, over the years, and he, uh, you were pretty quick on getting a first copy, right? I think mm-hmm. you you got yours kind of early on, right after it was published. Pretty early on, and started using it regularly. You can tell it's well it's well loved. Cool. Um, you know what they say: uh, an Anglican office book that's falling apart is it the sign of a life that isn't. <laughs> it's true. That on Sacramentalist merch. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> the ultimate niche uh, merch. <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, that's that's our whole that's our whole deal. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Well, first of all, uh, Lance, could you give our listeners who may be unfamiliar uh, with um, the Anglican Office Book, the Breviary Tradition, anything like that, a, a sort of brief explanation of. Uh, what the Anglican Office Book is, and uh, what are some of its sort of features that make it so uh, important and valuable uh, in their prayer life? Well, simplest way to put it is that the Anglican Office Book does for the daily office of the prayer book tradition what the various missals have done for the Office of Holy Communion. Uh, which essentially in in this case means to take the structure and format of the prayer book office, in in this case predominantly that of the 1928 prayer book, and to restore to it those elements uh, that characterized the hours uh, of of more ancient liturgical practice, pre-Reformation predominantly. Um, Now, 
following the, the general uh, way the prayer books have developed, I made a decision to base this material on material largely from the serum use. Uh, because again, we, we have a, a lectionary, for example, in the Eucharistic uh, rite in the prayer book that largely follows the serum cursus. And so I wanted to, to keep that theme. Now, what I think makes the AOB different um, is not that it is a unique publication. There have been books like this uh, produced in the recent past. Uh, really, in some sense, you can find supplements to the offices, of course, going back to the Caroline period and even earlier. Uh, but certainly, once we had the Oxford movement and there was all the scholarship that opened up, particularly into Serum, and we had retranslations of those rites, um, John Mason Neal, of course, and all of his work, he did the Serum Breviary. Many of the orders um, began to use uh, elements, at least from Serum. By the mid 20th century, there was clearly a desire to have some form of liturgical, um, not revision, but a, a, an enhancement in a systematic way to the prayer book offices, as was occurring in most parishes with the communion service already. Uh, two works that were notable, as, as far as this endeavor goes, were what was called the English Office Book, and it was first produced at the very end of the 19th century. And it was the 1662 office with just a few uh, additional collects and such uh, to allow an expanded calendar uh, of, of the saints and of the seasons. And that went through several editions, culminating in the last edition of 1955, uh, which is an interesting work. It's, it's hard to find in original form now. It was bound with all the, the readings from the 1922 English lectionary, but uh, following the, certainly the high church party in England at that point in time, it adopted the rubrical reforms of Pius XII from 55. And so it created an interesting middle way office um, you know, between the earlier tradition and then what eventually came to be 1962 and then the Novus Ordo. Uh, in America, the only real work that did the same thing to this extent was Father Paul Hartzell, uh, who compiled a, a book called The Prayer Book Office. And it originally came out in 1944 and had two subsequent editions in 63 and 67. And he sought to restore many serum elements, a fuller calendar, uh, to the 1928 office. But he did it in a way that by using his book, you didn't have to be encumbered, as it were, with the additions if you didn't want them. I can't prove this, but I think part of it was a nod uh, towards keeping the rubrical integrity of the 28 intact and not making it appear as if he were adding things to the ordinary as the Episcopal Church had approved it. So if you wanted to use the prayer book office, you had to go to multiple different sections to find your hymns or your collects, your antiphons. And so while the content was excellent, and he really did a wonderful job in, in uh, making it 
mold with the prayer book tradition, the book itself was a bit unwieldy. Uh, and then by 63, he had worked with the prayer book studies commission in its earlier days, but he began to be influenced by the liturgical movement as it had developed at that point. And so there were some more ad hoc changes he had made to the office. And by 67, he had really uh, created this office that was entirely of his own mind, um, loosely based still in 28, but he had what he called a world calendar where he, he thought we would fix the date of Easter. And he was convinced that this sort of thing was going to become uh, commonplace throughout the Christian world. And uh, of course, he campaigned for many of the things that later came to reality, such as um, removing Septuagesimatide and, and these sorts of things. So those latter two editions, interesting to see the, the development of, of this certain style of Anglo-Catholic liturgy in the Episcopal Church, not particularly helpful today. So my idea was the Anglican office book should take the best of the work that was done before and put it into a format usable and, dare I say, approachable by anybody. Um, because the only other source we have had in English that at least is conformable to the 1928 uh, rite is the Anglican Breviary, which I think you know is, is a wonderful production. Um, but as those who pray the Breviary know, it does require a certain amount of finesse to learn the rubrics. But the bigger problem I think is that an awful lot of people are just unable to consistently pray the full round of offices. And the Psalter in the Anglican Breviary uh, is such that you will miss out on large portions of the Psalms if you are unable to commit daily to, to matins through Compline. Uh, and so though I am by no means a detractor of the Anglican Breviary or, or of Pius X's um, Psalter schema, it's not terribly practical for most laymen and even most clergy today. So the AOB is able to do for the prayer book uh, what the Anglican Breviary was trying to do, but in a way that is, is still usable and doesn't require the little hours to be done. Um, you can still follow the 30-day Psalter or one of the two-week schemes that, that will be in, in second edition and get the entire psaltery prayed regularly with no more than 15 to 20 minutes twice a day. So that's really what it was. Um, and I've, I've been amazed by the reception. Um, it, it was not, it was really a pet project that I intended for my own personal use uh, that sort of blew up beyond what I anticipated. Um, and yes, uh, Father Creighton, you mentioned that Father Wesley was an early adopter. I remember you, you joined the Facebook group, I think the first day it came out. It was when I, when I started the group, within an hour we had 500 members. Wow. Which is what really sort of impelled me to think, well, maybe there is something here that, that's a need in the church, and hopefully it can, it can meet that. That's awesome. I love that. 
Now, um, I think probably some people can can kind of piece this together where where you'll go with an answer, but I think it might be good to draw this out a little bit more because obviously one of the philosophies that undergirds the Book of Common Prayer, not just as a as a worship book, but also as an ascetical system, is that a life of prayer is not just for monastics. Um, it's for the laity as well. Um, and this, of course, wasn't unique to Cranmer. It wasn't unique to the English Reformation, but they did heavily emphasize it. And so how do you see the Anglican office book as carrying that emphasis forward? Well, at the risk of perhaps overstating the utility of the book, I would argue that the AOB uh, is, in some sense, a culmination of Cranmer's vision. Uh, that, that perhaps for cultural, political, practical reasons wasn't entirely possible at the time of the English Reformation. Uh, I don't think we have to get into any kind of, of party debate to recognize that the office had, by and large, certainly in, in the forms it took in England, become an exceedingly beautiful and glorious um, production. And it just wasn't being used the way the office ought to be used uh, by the church as a whole. And so we can't fault Cranmer for wanting to restore a sense of, of the office to every parish church um, to re-monasticize England, as it were. But there were practical decisions that he had to make. Uh, and eliminating the little hours, I think there was just there was there was no good way if he wanted to restore a firm sense of the office as a foundation for the practice of the church, then going to a model that was morning and evening had the most utility. However, I don't think that we can argue that in so doing, there was necessarily an intent to forbid all that had come before, absolutely. I mean, obviously you had the examples of Little Gidding and, and many others, Lancelot Andrews. Um, and, and so this sense that there were hours of prayer that could still be used uh, beyond Matins and Evensong, it remains in the English church. And of course we all can speculate as to what may have happened had the monasteries themselves not been dissolved. Uh, so the AOB keeps what Cranmer intended, and, and in, in the curses of the little hours in the AOB, they are intentionally kept short and largely unchanging. Uh, and, and this is a point of departure, perhaps, from the Roman and, and Serum traditions, um, both of which had, at least until 1911, a fixed psalter at little hours, but even putting that aside, the little chapter, the antiphons, these sorts of things would vary by the day or by the season. And so when I was putting this together, I, I looked at some other books that have been produced by Anglican clergy in the past, um, one of which was called The Priest's Manual of Devotion. It was quite popular in England. It was first printed in, in the Victorian period and went through something like 15 or 16 editions uh, well into the 1960s. And it's a fascinating look 
at the development of Anglo-Catholic spirituality amongst the clergy. It was meant to be a clerical book. Um, for example, it went from largely being the 19, or excuse me, the 1662 book with some variants of the Little Hours thrown in to by the 1960s, having most of the priests private prayers uh, only given in Latin, the rite of communion, of course, being essentially the Roman rite with the Latin canon and, and that sort of thing. So they had uh, an approach to the Little Hours in that book that drew heavily on Benedictine use. So it used the gradual Psalms, but only varied antiphons and such seasonally. So there was, there was little variation to it, but just enough to keep it interesting. And if you weren't able to pray all the little hours, then of course those psalms were covered by matins and evensong in the prayer book. So I used that as my basis for uh, the AOB. I chose the gradual psalms because of, of one, their length, but also, again, this sort of Benedictine emphasis. Um, psalm... 119 is a lovely psalm. It can become a bit uh, drudgery, shall we say, if you have to pray it through every day. Um, and that is why I myself, again, in popular opinion, tend to prefer Pius X's uh, <laughs> revision of the office as, as a historical, in some senses, his psalter might be. Um, there's a utility there that's important. So uh, I think what we have done with the AOB is take Cranmer's approach and say, you can now begin to sanctify the rest of the time throughout the day, like was the uh, universal tradition in the church from the earliest days, following the same sense of simplicity that has made the prayer book right, uh, not only so influential, but I mean, let's face it it, it, it has been adopted by both the Orthodox churches and by Rome in some form, which tells me that there's a great usefulness to that approach and a necessity for it in the church today. Uh, and so now the AOB has that as an option. As an aside, though, to that point, for those who, who do pray the little hours um, consistently and regularly, there's going to be uh, another two-week Psalter scheme in the second edition that will follow um, the sort of Pius X approach and will have short variable psalms. I'm shorter than, than he provides for, again, to keep that idea that these are five-minute offices throughout the day. Um, but I know that there are a good number of people that have made it their custom to pray all uh, of the hours each day. So this will again allow maybe a little bit more variety without losing the the idea of what the hours are meant to be. That's helpful. That's helpful. Now, one criticism I've heard of the AOB, and I do not share this. In fact, I think it's a bunk. Um, and but I was just having a conversation with someone yesterday who ironically, this person is a Roman Catholic um, who <laughs> it's a long story. But anyways, uh, he says that that one of his issues with the AOB is that it it overcomplicates what is a very simple and elegant BCP office 
to the point that it's unapproachable. That was his argument. Um, I think this is just not true, but I'm I'm curious how you would respond if if, if you heard someone talk like that about the AOB. Well, I think my first question would be, well, then what would you consider to be approachable? I mean, certainly we, we couldn't consider, in my opinion, either the Roman breviary or the Liturgy of the Hours to be such. Um, in fact, I would say Liturgy of the Hours is less approachable than the Roman breviary. Uh, so with that said, I would say, look, uh, the AOB keeps the entire structure of Cranmer's office and does not complicate it any more than the average parish mass has complicated the simple and elegant communion service in the prayer book. You know, I, I have never experienced a parish that did say a straight 1928 or 1662 liturgy as written with nothing else added to it, meaning no hymns, no additional collects, no minor propers, um, you know, not having the benedictus after the song. I have never experienced that, and there's a reason for it. There's a reason that really from the beginning, whether it were metrical psalms or hymnody or what have you, the, the, the liturgies in the prayer book have been uh, embellished, shall we say. And, and of course, we do that at, at its best when we embellish them with material from the tradition and not something created in committee in the 1960s. But nevertheless, I think there's a more fundamental issue here that, that, that is at, at stake. And, and this is partly what led me to publish the AOB. Um, there, is, there is a disconnect, or has been in many cases a disconnect, particularly in Anglo-Catholic parishes, parishes of the continuum, uh, between what goes on Sunday morning at the Mass and what goes on daily in the office. The Mass and the office are interrelated. You really cannot separate one from the other. Um, you know, Pius Parsh, uh, the liturgical scholar, uh, in his book, The Breviary Explained, he relates this to the analogy of the Mass being the sun and the hours of the office are the planets revolving around it, or the mass is the jewel and, and the divine office is, is um, the centerpiece for it, is what frames it. And what happens, I think, is particularly in our parishes that use the missal, is we will have this beautiful historic rite of mass uh, with all of the saints' days observed and all of the seasons, and then we'll go pray our office, which is completely stripped of all of that and, and has no actual relation to what we just did at the Mass. And this is particularly noticeable with the Saints' Days. You know, Anglo-Catholics, for example, uh, generally love uh, to have the full cursus of Marian feasts. Well, aside from the purification and the Annunciation, all the rest of them have no collects provided. So it would seem odd to me to say Mass for the Assumption and then to go read Evensong and pray the previous Sunday's collect. So what, have, what has the AOB done? Well, in practice, all that is added 
to the simple elegance, and I will agree with that phrase, of the prayer book office are hymns, one. There are two hymns added at matins and one at evensong. There are antiphons on the psalms, which is there are always only one antiphon, um, yeah, on, especially on feast days, and an antiphon on the uh, New Testament canticle, the Benedictus and Magnificat. Other than that, the only addition uh, are collects for the entire cursus of the year. So the reality is, again, have have either of you ever attended a parish evensong that didn't have hymns added to it? I mean, you know, my career has been spent as an organist, um, and I've been very fortunate to have, have worked in some really lovely parishes, uh, both of the Anglican and the, the traditional Latin um, uh, uses. And the idea of going up there and doing a 1928 evensong as is, with no choral anthem, no hymns, none of that, I, I, again, I've never seen it done. I'm not convinced it does happen anywhere. Uh, so to say that it overly complicates, I would actually say, what, what is more complicated? Sitting down and doing liturgical planning for the office in your parish where you have to figure out what hymns you might want to use, this, that, and the other, or just opening up the AOB and saying, hey, that's what's appointed. We can sing it to some melody everybody knows, and that's that. We're letting the church's tradition do the work for us. Um, and, and I really, I, 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 I think that is an argument made by somebody who probably hasn't really spent much time actually trying to live into the tradition. Yeah, I would say too, I mean, you know, even if you're, even if you're fairly new to praying the office, I think the AOB is very approachable, quite the opposite of something like the breviary. Like you said, it requires finesse. I mean, I, you know, you have to get out the, the ordo and figure out exactly what to do. I mean, honestly, I spend about as much time figuring out what I'm going to do in the office as actually praying the office. The AOB, I think you can set that up in probably three to five minutes. I mean, realistically, it's really not hard. No, you're right. And and that was part of my goal with it. And and the second edition in particular, you know, there, there, there were one thing that may set the AOB apart, uh, let's say from the Anglican Missal, is the, you know, the Missal sometimes assigns different rankings to feast days and the AOB does. Um, usually in the direction of the missile will give a higher ranking to feast in the AOB. And there's a practical reason that many feasts are observed purely as memorials in the AOB. And, and one of those practical reasons is to prevent too much uh, of what you just described, of having to sit down and figure out okay, um, do I have to consult the tables of occurrence or concurrence and what takes precedence? And, but in those cases where uh, these could be real questions that occur regularly throughout the, the course of the year, in the second edition, I have gone to, I think, about the greatest lengths you can possibly go to put in the rubrics, in line, in the propers, this is what you're going to do today in a way that the breveries just have never done, and for practical reasons they couldn't do. So again, you talk about the, the simplicity of the English office. 
I think the AOB is trying to maintain that um, in a way that nevertheless allows for a fuller sense of the liturgical cycle. I think it's interesting too, just as an aside, um, that you often hear criticisms that the the sort of let's take the the Western patrimony as a whole. It's too complicated. It's too, you know, whatever. It's it's this big complex machine that's moving around and it's these feasts here and feasts there and celebrations here. But I think criticisms that say things like the Anglican office book is complicating a simple, you know, sort of elegant service make a sort of fundamental error that um, that complication is like a bad thing, that, that beauty or um, nuance or whatever is negative, that it detracts from one's experience in worship. But the reality is it's it helps facilitate our worship. It helps uh, helps us understand the transcendent sort of numinous quality of worship itself. Um, but that doesn't mean it has to be hard to use. And there's a difference there between complicated and hard to use. Um, and I think like with the Anglican office book, it's still complex in a positive sense, uh, but it's easy to use. It's accessible. Uh, other books for the divine office might be complicated and hard to use. <laughs> right, right. But I, I, I think you're onto something there. And again, this is just purely my own experience, but I spent eight years um, as organist and choir master at a parish run by the, by the Fraternity of St. Peter, so traditional Latin mass. Uh, and immediately after that, spent five years working for a parish of the Episcopal Church they used the 1979 book and all that went along with that. And as someone who was deeply involved in, shall we say, liturgical planning and execution of liturgy as an organist and director of music, I have to tell you, the older rites are much more coherent. They're far more straightforward. And once you understand the rhythm of them and, and maybe how the books are laid out, it's a far simpler task, even if the material itself might be more complex. You know, working through the modern liturgies with their multiple year lectionaries and optionitis galore, I mean, you, you sit there and, and you spend more time in that case, I think, figuring out which options you want to choose than you would ever spend sitting down with a Roman breviary, for example, and saying, oh, okay, well, tonight is first even song of such and such. It's, it's really not that difficult. And personally, I think that oftentimes these criticisms are made from a place in some sense of, of unfamiliarity, yes, but also a bit of fear. I, I think sometimes, particularly if we consider this uh, at, for public liturgy, there is a fear that because of modern attention spans or these sorts of things, that people won't understand. We should be able to come to a parish and regardless of what background we come from, uh, easily digest what has just happened liturgically. I find that to be a, a peculiar perspective and certainly not a terribly historical one. 
as far as the church goes, east or west. Um, I would rather say, how about we learn to live in a liturgical cycle, not worry quite so much about whether it's easy or difficult or accessible or not accessible or approachable or what have you, and let the liturgy do what it's supposed to do, which is form us. We want to form it. That's, that's the modern mentality. And everyone is guilty of that across the board. And, and, and we're never going to get past a lot of these issues in the church broad today uh, until we change places in our approach to the liturgy. Let the tradition speak to us, learn to live it, and don't worry about having to take control of everything all the time. I think that's a I think that's a great point. Um, I always try to remind people that it's we're we're the ones being formed, right? We're not the ones right. doing the forming. Mm -hmm. um, but so one of the one of the reasons that we wanted to have you on to kind of talk about this uh, coincides with the fact that pre-order for the second edition of the Anglican Office book is now live over at the St Andrews website, and we'll put a link um, to that website in our show notes for any listeners or viewers who want to check that out. Uh, and I, you've kind of answered some of this already, touched on it, but um, why a second edition and what does it have that the, the first didn't? Um, what are some of the changes? Uh, just sort of walk us through that process. Well, the reality is I didn't know what I was doing when I produced the first edition. Uh, Typesetting a book, particularly a liturgical book, is not for the faint of heart. And when I started it, it, it began as a COVID project, really. Um, I, I was living in New York City at the time, and as you can imagine, when this all began, New York became a somewhat hostile environment in some respects. So I came down to visit my family in Georgia and spent a few months down here and took some of my book collection with me and got this crazy idea that, well, how come no one has reproduced one of these office books in the last 50 years? So it began entirely as a pet project that I thought maybe I'd find a, a, a private publishing company, have a few copies for myself, and that would be that. Well, my dear friend, Father Brian Foose, who's the headmaster of St. Andrew's Academy, uh, I was talking to him about this, and, and he is a man that has no shortage of vision about anything. And he says, well, let's publish it. Well, I don't know the first thing about any of this. And so we, he, he was real insistent that we do this, and so he got, he got the, the funds together, found a benefactor who was willing to, to support the print run. So we started to do that. But the reality is by the time we made that decision, I had done so much work into the first edition that going back and making any uh, major corrections, to the typesetting or, or even alterations would have required an amount of work that I wasn't sure I could commit to at that point in time. So we released it. And again, it, it, it was, very popular. Um, and I, you know, I received so many comments from people thanking us for, for producing it and 
saying that you know they'd waited for years for something like this to happen. And it also struck me where these people were coming from. Uh, yes, the majority were Anglicans of, of, of some variety, but you know, Roman Catholics, uh, Orthodox of Eastern and Western persuasion, um, uh, Methodists, Lutherans, you know, all across the board. There was something about it. Even people that, that would write to me and say, well, you know, I'm, I'm maybe not quite on board with the communion of the saints. Maybe I can't quite uh, bring myself to uh, address a prayer to one of the saints, but I found so much use in the rest of the book. And, you know, so I was thinking about that response and talking to my publisher. And of course, we knew that we'd have to, to run a second printing eventually uh, and probably sooner rather than later. And so I told him, well, let's hold off a little bit. I would really like to retypeset the whole thing. If we're going to do it again, then let me do it the way it ought to have been done the first time. I'll learn the software properly and go through and, and really try to make it look like um, the best of the, the breviary tradition in terms of typesetting and such. Uh, and so the easy part, in some sense, was copying and pasting all the text. The hard part was in going through and completely changing everything. Now, we changed the font, we changed the organization, the structure. But there was one other thing that left the first edition incomplete for me. And that is that it was not a complete office book. In the Anglican tradition, of course, you, you have to have the curses of Scripture. And, and it makes sense if you pray your office in the church or if you pray at a prayer desk at home that you're doing it twice a day, you would leave a Bible next to your office book, and that's fine. But again, when I've produced something that has the little hours, that has several pastoral offices in it, uh, many other offices of devotion that could be used throughout the day, it seemed to me that we needed to have all the material bound together. My initial idea was, well, since this is largely a book for the American church, we'll put in the 1943 lectionary readings, knowing that probably nobody is totally satisfied with that lectionary, but it is what we are generally stuck with right now. And of course, those tables are in the AOB. And I was talking to, to my publisher about it, and I said, but you know, there, there is a problem. In some sense, it might limit the usefulness of the book because we also have two other lectionary tables in the back. You know, the Canadian 1962, which I think is a wonderful lectionary uh, and is approved in, in the, the G3, certainly. And then we also have the 1549. Um, and by binding in the 43 lections, you would still need to have a Bible with it. And as we all know, there are, what, two editions, certainly of the authorized version that have the Apocrypha bound in right now, neither of which are terrifically portable. So Father Foos says, we'll just put the Bible with it. I laughed, and, and well, the idea of typesetting the Bible, which we would have to do, I mean, there was... There was no elegant way to do a photographic reproduction, which is really what everyone does now for the authorized version. 
for the most part, at least all the ones with the Apocrypha. So I scoffed at the idea initially, but began to think about it and said, well, if you're going to do it, you may as well do it the best way you possibly can that will have the most usefulness for people. And the reality is, I have to keep in mind that the AOB needs to generally conform to a liturgy that can be used publicly. And since I think maybe the, the one thing that perhaps all the Anglican jurisdictions have in common is that the authorized version is at least permitted, if not required, for public readings of scripture, that made the most sense, one, and two, just putting it all together. That was a bit of a Herculean task. Now, I've had people ask me, did you have to hand type the entire Bible? No. Thankfully, I did not. There, there are plenty of resources that have been checked over and over and over again for the text. But I will tell you this. Um, you know, we had to, for, for space reasons, put it into a paragraph format. And of course, generally speaking, the authorized version has been produced, you know, verse by line kind of format. So even uh, going through and having to translate all of that from line by line into paragraph, I mean, that I couldn't even tell you how many hours of work that was. Um, because I, I was insistent that we not change the physical size of the book. Being portable, I think, is very important to the usefulness of the AOB. Um, but also making the text legible. Uh, so it, it, it went through several revisions before I finally settled on something that I think will have the, the broadest appeal um, for the Bible. But you know, we've got... Uh, the Old Testament, followed by the AOB, followed by the New Testament, and then with the apocryphal books at the end, um, which I have been careful to say is not a theological statement. Um, they are only at the end because this, again, is an office book. And the reality is those books are read the least. And as anybody who has had a larger... Um, for example, the, the 28 um, King James combo that, that we have, the end of the New Testament can begin to separate uh, from the binding. And we don't want that to happen. So I figure most people probably are not reading Second Maccabees terribly often. Uh, and so putting those books at the end was purely for practical purposes, keeping the book as strong as we possibly could for as long as, as we can. Um, but it, it is done, and I hope people will be pleased with it. It's, it's no frills. You know, we, we couldn't put in any of the verse references, cross-references, these kinds of things. Um, but again, there's plenty of material out there for that if you need it. This is an office book. But now you can use all three of the lectionaries um, and still have just the one book. And I'm pleased to say we switched to um, a, a thinner Bible paper in the first edition. So we're only adding about 0.8 inches to the thickness of the book. 
which will still make it thinner than either the Anglican Breviary or the 28 King James combination. And Lance, when can um, when could people expect if they pre-order now? About when could they expect to actually receive it? I know some of that's out of your control, but just in general. So the the, the most I'm I know that I can say um, the the publishers are, or the printers are working on it right now. Um, they are hoping to have the whole thing done by the end of May. Now there is it's going to take longer than the first edition and. There are two reasons for that. One, of course, it's a much longer book. We're, we're, we went from 700 and something pages to 2,200. Um, it is produced on a much higher quality paper. It will have 10 ribbons bound in with it, um, a higher quality cover um, that also has a quite more elaborate design on it than the current one. I have intentionally withheld um, that from public consumption until I, I have a copy of the book to show. But the thing that we really can't control is once they print it, they put it into a barge and ship it to California where St. Andrews is. Last time in 2020, uh, you know, they had told us it would be about two weeks on the barge. But of course, we were still in the midst of all the COVID stuff. And it took them about twice as long. Uh, to, to just physically to get the books offloaded. So as much as I would like to be able to, to give a date, it, we unfortunately, we just can't predict that. Um, but we are certainly hoping that books will begin shipping in June. And uh, my publisher has assured me that uh, first come, first served in terms of the pre-orders. Um, because you have to keep in mind, they're a pretty small outfit in terms of, of getting these mailed. I mean, they've got four to five people that really will work on mailing these out. And so when you've got several hundred orders, you have to get out immediately once the books arrive. The first people who ordered them were the first ones to get them the mail. Um, you know, but we've, we've had a, a very good showing so far. We should say that the uh, the packaging that they come in is actually really fantastic. At least the first edition was. I assume there will be a similar caliber for the second edition, but it was it was quite an experience just opening it. In fact, I almost didn't want to because it was wrapped so nicely. We we had several people who wrote to me saying that they got their razor out to try to just just slightly cut the the top of the packaging so they can save it. Um, I have not yet seen what's in store. For the second edition, but I am told it, it will be of a level of elegance to match the second edition itself. So I will be surprised too. <laughs> well, that um, I think we're all looking forward to it. I think uh, it should be really fun to kind of dig into it, um, especially on like my end, right? Because I'm kind of like a office nerd and liturgy uh -huh. nerd and things, so. If you if you were in my office right now, there's just like I think four or five different office books over there. There's like four or five, but they're all different. They're all you know. So I have to add it to the collection. Got to have the second edition. You and I share the same passion. I have more <laughs> office books than I should admit to. Yeah, there's there's whole sections of missiles and office books, and it's <laughs> overwhelming. You know, uh, I just acquired to so just to speak to your 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 nerddom for a moment. I just acquired. 
a complete set of the pre-monstra tension breviary in four volumes. The last one produced in the, in the early 50s, which, by the way, was the only other Latin use that had the serum cursus of O antiphons in Advent, the only other one that shared them. And I've been piecing that set together for several years now. Very hard to find, as you can imagine. <laughs> oh, yeah. And I think there's probably only eight or nine other people looking for them, and so you're competing you're on right, all yes. the different auctions. <laughs> my, my, my last um, volume I was looking for came from Brazil, of all places. I didn't know they had a presence down there, but apparently they did. Um, well, you will be pleased to know, as, as someone who likes the, the breviary tradition, that um, we have expanded uh, the offering of Latin in the second edition. Um, we have the, the uh, meal blessings before and after given in English and Latin and a few other things as well. So again, an attempt to draw on the broader tradition uh, and provide something that, that might make the book a bit more interesting or set it apart from what's generally on offer right now. Yeah, I think that's great. Uh, just cover as many interests in people as possible. Mm -hmm. um, well, that brings us, I think, to one of our favorite sections, which is what we're into. Um, Lance, since you're our guest, what are you into? Well, I think the answer I'm supposed to give to that is I am into my preparations for canonicals, but I'm going to put that aside for a moment. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I have been reading a, a book rather piecemeal lately um, that was gifted to me that I have found really quite fascinating. Uh, it, it's called Easily Satisfied with the Best. Uh, and it's by a priest, Father Darwin Kirby, who's now deceased, you may know him. Um, he was rector of St. George's in Schenectady, New York. And this was a, a private memoir that he published uh, in, in 91. It was never given to anybody aside from some friends of his. And a friend of mine managed to find a copy of this and gift it to me. And I suppose it's in the vein of something like Merrily on High. But, but the big difference is Father Kirby uh, not only gives his amusing anecdotes, but, but he really gives a blueprint for how to build an Anglo-Catholic parish. Because when he inherited St. George's, it was snake belly low. They didn't want anything, vestments, none of it. And he, within, he claims within two years, transformed them to one of the highest and most Catholic parishes, really, in the Episcopal Church. And I think there's a, there's a lot to learn from his approach to it. And so I've, I've really been trying to sketch out a, an outline of his advice um, how he approached this, and and thinking about it, just sort of in my own context, um, both as someone who who works in the church, you know, as, as a musician, but also as someone who is uh, pursuing orders. But other than that, I suppose what I'm into um, when I'm not reading and working on the AOB is I have finally recovered my my um, love of the bagpipes. I I took up learning them after years of wanting to, um, right before COVID hit, again, living in New York, and then everything shut down. 
And so now that my master's work is done and the AOB is done, I have finally gotten back to that. And I'm not sure what my neighbors think about hearing me walk around in the backyard with them, but they'll get used to it. A little culture never hurt anybody, I suppose. Exactly. <laughs> well, Father, what are you into? Bagpipes? No, no, nothing nearly as refined as that. <laughs> I guess I need a little culture too. Um, I think, well, well, the weather has gotten so nice. Um, and here, it's actually been a little cooler than it normally is this time of year. So I've been outside a lot. Um, specifically, uh, I've, I've recovered kind of my love of bicycling. So I've been riding my bike around a lot. I bought a bike during COVID. Um, I forgot if it was with Biden bucks or Trump bucks, but one of them, I bought a nice bike and, um, you know, it was riding around. We, where we used to live had a, a ton of trails around. And so I rode that and then we moved, uh, to a little bit more of a crowded area and, uh, there's not quite as much, uh, by way of trails, but I've been, been getting back into it anyways. Um, just cause it's so fun. And the other outdoor activity that we've been into my wife and I in particular, but also the deacon at my church, Deacon David and, and a few other friends, um, pickleball. Uh, which I know is uh, supposedly for old people. Um, in fact, uh, I think I don't think I've told this story on here, but Deacon David and I uh, at a synod a few years, a, a few I think last year, uh, went to a racket club to play pickleball. We had to go down a day early because he had to be examined by our board of examining chaplain. So we had a free day. So we found this racquetball club and we went and it was like Tuesday at 10 and there were like probably 70 people. Uh, there, but they were all over the age of 60, except for me and Deacon David. And uh, so we jumped into some games with some some older ladies and they kicked my butt. I tell you what, they absolutely did. And of course, uh, yeah, it, um, perhaps my uh, my language was not fitting for a priest uh, being beaten by these 60 year old women. <laughs> it was pretty awesome. So anyway, so we've really been in a pickleball lately uh, so that when I go back uh, to play against uh, the retirees, I, I don't get don't get it handed to me quite as bad. Uh, Father Creighton, what are you into? Well, um, I'm doing a reread. This is probably for the third time. Um, I think it's the third time. Uh, reread of Jean Danilou's God in the Ways of Knowing. Um, I've got a little project cooking, and so I needed, I needed him, uh, so I needed to get into the nitty gritty uh, of this particular book. Um, so I'm really enjoying it. I'm already, um, I love his writing style. So I started it a few days ago, um, probably halfway through. Um, and yeah, there are a few other, um, as listeners probably are aware, sort of my area of academic and uh, specialty interest is is sort of uh, the Lubeck and sort of philosophical theology, resource mod, that sort of thing. Um, so, yeah. If this project comes to something, then I'll tell the listeners. But if it doesn't, then I'm just enjoying a great book. So, um, yeah, uh, it's really good. I recommend people, if you're, if you're sort of interested in, I'm not going to call it epistemology because it kind of is and isn't. Um, if you're interested in how Danny Liu approaches sort of weaving together uh, philosophy, religion, epistemology, sort of all into his vision for God's self-revelation in Christ, 
I really recommend it. It's really interesting. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's good to sort of keep my mind working. I think the last couple times I've said something I'm into, it's been really mundane, <laughs> uh, embarrassingly mundane. Um, so really enjoying it. Uh, as that brings us to the to the end of our episode, though, um, we are really really thankful, Lance, that you came on. Um, if anybody is interested in finding any more about the Anglican Office book or what you're doing, uh, are there are there any ways they can get in touch or contact you? Well, the easiest way would be go on to our Facebook group um, and send me a message. I do my best to reply to every single person that posts on there or sends me a, a, a private message. I'm happy to answer questions and tell you what I can. Awesome. Uh, listeners, viewers, if you are interested in uh, supporting the show or, or getting some extra content, uh, please remember to uh, check out our Patreon. You can follow us for $5 a month and you can join the communion of Patreon saints. Uh, we have uh, all of our social media is usually posted with the show, but if you like us um, on Facebook, please uh, check out our Facebook group. You can email us with any questions or comments at thesacramentalists at gmail.com. Uh, and wherever you get your podcasts, you can rate, review, and subscribe, as well as on YouTube. Uh, Father Wes, will you give us a blessing? Yes. Straight out of the Anglican office book? I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. I was unprepared. I threw it at you. You did. The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God and of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. The blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you always. Amen. Amen. Thank you, gentlemen.